Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 152, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, school districts are starting to announce their plans to educate students in the fall of 2020 while navigating COVID-19. So how do those plans stack up? Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're taking a deep dive into inquiry-based learning, how you can use your students' curiosities as an entry point into curriculum. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is May the 25th, Memorial Day, and I'm joined by the principal that's helping us navigate the future of school, specifically the fall of 2020, Christina Pollard. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing wonderful. Happy Memorial Day to you. Yes, same to you. Uh, Hopefully you had somewhat of a reprieve, I guess, with you and your family over the past few days. We have continued to shelter at home. You probably have a great looking yard, though, right? Oh, it looks magnificent. I was outside this morning um, reading and just enjoying the patio. And um, my husband did fire up the grill today. But we we have been at home just really enjoying our time together. That's good. That's good. There is somewhat of a silver lining. And that is the time that people have been able to spend with their families. There's so much to talk about uh, this week, though. And that really all kind of... It all kind of centers around we're, we're going to get into um, what some school districts are planning on doing because they're starting to release some ideas and plans from different districts around the country. And some are some really great ideas. Um, I mean, I don't know if there is a perfect solution to what we're facing in the fall of 2020, uh, but we'll go over those. But also, we need to touch on these CDC guidelines um, that they released last week, I guess, in more of its entirety. Um, and it did not get the best reception from what I saw <laughs> in my Twitter feed. Um, a lot of educators were not too thrilled. Um, what say you about the guidelines? Um, I understand the thought process behind it, but I'm just going to be honest. This is not necessarily the principal speaking. This is just Christina speaking. It's it's so unrealistic Um, when you have to think about the resources and the funding involved to do the things that they're recommending. But at the same time, it takes away that special cultural piece of of school itself, which is the socializing, um, mingling with children, the playtime, which is so much, it's so important for elementary students, um, not just to run around and burn off energy, but to just to, to navigate how to make friends and to, you know, communicate with one another and in, enjoy their time at school. For a lot of children, they may not tell you, oh, I just love to learn, but they love going to school. It's the highlight of their life. And it's just going to be drastic. Yeah, so so you kind of hinted at some of these. We've got closing playgrounds, um, lunch in classrooms rather than, I guess, lunch in like a, a large area like a cafeteria. Um, I think you have the proposal of maybe like a hybrid virtual in-person class schedule, which we're going to dive more into because some districts seem to be going that route. Um, and then the whole idea of, um, you know, 
teachers and they said i think older students wearing masks um so of hearing those things i mean like you said first off the playground that's heartbreaking right i mean it makes sense i guess but that's tough that's a bitter pill to swallow and again these are guidelines not rules right like a a district can do what it wants essentially right that's true but but what district wants to deviate from the CDC guidelines and not set an example, not do what's best to keep children safe. And then at the same time, keeping their staff safe, because that's another right. another big issue we have to make sure we keep thinking about is not just the vulnerable population, but putting our teachers um, at risk daily as well. We talked about, you know, already, I think it was last week's episode, the the difficulty of a teacher even trying to teach in a mask. I mean, this is becoming more of a reality. Are you having those discussions with your teachers that you're going to be working with next year? Um, Not necessarily my teachers just yet, but definitely my leadership team. I mean, even I have found it difficult um, in the midst of trying to conduct interviews or holding Zoom meetings if we're um, on campus together. It's difficult to understand. So at some point you find yourself removing your mask um, as long as you're six feet away from someone so that one, you can breathe, but two, so that everyone can understand what you're saying. And I keep thinking about well, when we have leadership meetings, there's anywhere from four to you know eight of us at a table. What will that look like all across the nation in schools? And then if they are concerned about the number of people in a classroom, wow, I, 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 there's just so many questions that need to be answered, and they all boil down to funding. The, one other thing I saw, which seems possible in the elementary school setting, but not in the middle school and the high school setting. And that was trying to keep the same small group of kids with the same staff. That was a CDC guideline. I mean, do you see high schools pulling that off in any form? I don't know how you pull that off and cover the content specific subjects that students need to take. Um, at, you know, as college preparatory courses, unless the students simply do not rotate. Now, you can make it work for high school, but at the end of the day, how can you have a lab for every group of students that needs to take chemistry? That's a good point. You can't so do if, that. Yeah, if they're not supposed to travel, I mean, it's realistic. You can pick classroom one-on-one in this homeroom group. This is where you learn all day long and teachers rotate in and out. But then when it comes time to actually having a, a, you know, a chemistry lesson and they're in a classroom that is not set up um, as a lab, they're at a disadvantage. I guess overall, and, and tell me if you agree with me or not, these guidelines are, it's a bitter pill to swallow. Um, and yes. But at the same time, I mean, what do we expect? It's what's best. Right. right. Yeah. You know, and, and we're glad the CDC is giving us something. Um, and I guess they're trying to be, you know, I don't know if realistic is the right word, but realistic in terms of being safe, um, at least. And I think that's, this is just a reality. Again, this is where we're going to be in the fall of 2020, and- short of this thing fizzling out and not surging back at some point. That's true. And I think administrators from state superintendents on down to building level principals um, all over the country, I think we're all just trying to figure out, you know, how to successfully have a safe learning environment. What will it entail? You know, our planning is going to look differently, how we roll out instruction, everything that we've known um, as part of what we do every day. It's literally going to be different. Let's get into some specifics. Um, You sent me this article from uh, West 
Bloomfield, Michigan, and they have released what they want to do. And I kind of like this idea. I mean, again, there are no great answers, but I like this. They were suggesting that um, a group of students will come on Monday and Tuesday. On Wednesday, no one comes to school and virtual learning takes place. But while that virtual learning is taking place on Wednesday, the school can be sanitized. And then Mm -hmm. on Thursday and Friday, a different group of students would come in person. And meanwhile, those that were there on Monday and Tuesday would do the virtual learning on Thursday and Friday. And then over the weekend, the school can be sanitized again. What what did you think of that? I I liked that. What were your thoughts? I do. I really do like that. A lot of people have talked about Monday, Wednesday, and then switching to Tuesday, Thursday, and having Friday as uh, sanitizing the building. But doing so in the middle of the week, I think, is really crucial to making sure the second half of your population walks in the building to a a clean and safe environment. So I really, really like that. And with the building being sanitized on Wednesday and virtual learning happening on Wednesday, your teachers are still engaged with students every day of the week. Now, the only question I have, um, if virtual learning is taking place on Wednesdays and the other four days of the week are face-to-face instruction, when will you have professional development for your teachers? Because at the end of the day, they still need a lot of training and a lot of support for this to become natural, um, you know, because it's so different from what we're all, we're used to doing. Well, and that's a good question, that a good thought that you're bringing up here. I mean, what are you planning on doing over the summer? I guess let's say the month of July is probably when you'll have to do a lot of this with your teachers. It's like every educator in the country was thrusted. And I mean, like in a week's time, Absolutely. two weeks to, to say, all right, we're teaching virtually. Now you have a little bit of time. I mean, is there anything that you can do in that month leading up before school starts? Well, we've talked about this um, in our leadership meetings. And the first thing that our superintendent um, shared is they need a break. Because while a lot of people in the world think that teachers have done nothing the last two months, that is, it's far from the truth. If anything, their days have been longer. Communication is definitely not during business hours. And there's just a constant unfold of, of challenges in trying to reach every child and making sure that each child is um, provided with the appropriate support that they need. We have decided that we're going to give teachers a little break, a break from everything tied to instruction in school because they deserve it and they need it. That's also going to give us an opportunity to talk about what will the most effective training look like. And I am proud to say that within our state, but I'm also seeing this um, on Twitter and just in different groups that I'm in, that there is a great push for webinars and support Um, almost every day through the end of June with a lot of different staff development trainings that are out there already and free of charge to teachers. Our state department specifically has dropped a number of sessions on how to effectively provide virtual learning, how to improve your support for students with special needs. I mean, I'm just really excited about the shift that educational consultants are taking. Um, They too have already dropped a number of webinars and and uh, sessions that they can provide for teachers. And even some of the best conferences that we all look forward to attending have all switched to virtual conferences. Those are all examples of how we can teach, how they've modified and how they're going to make it work 
for conferences that don't normally host thousands of teachers and going virtual, they're modeling for us how it can be done on top of giving us those sessions that are going to support this new type of teaching that we're doing. Well, that that is all good news. And some, uh, hopefully, teachers will take advantage of those resources. Oh, that they are. are. Good. They, they definitely are. Now, you sent me another article that I really like. This was a different part of the country. We're down in Louisiana now, and I'm going to do my best with the parish because uh, in Louisiana, for those that don't know, it's not counties, they're parishes, and it's Tangipahoa Parish. Um, mm-hmm. And they're saying they're going to be offering a virtual schooling option, and they're going to let parents choose whether or not you send your child to school virtually or you send your child in person. I will say that the district apparently was already working on this. Um, that was going to be my very first yeah. statement is that that needed to be handled yesterday because if you're going to give parents the choice, Nick, <laughs> I mean, that can, you know, change by the day. How many times do they get to change their, their mind? And then what does that look like for providing um, instruction, the, the, the correct number of teachers? What if you have 80% of your parents that choose they only want virtual learning, you're going to need to cut units. I mean, it's just a lot of things I think are impacted by giving parents that choice versus having a standard district decision. And, and I had seen another place, I think Alabama was considering this, but I have not seen like a more concrete article on that. But I mean, from what I'm hearing from you, though, at least by your tone of kind of the response to that is you feel like this maybe isn't the best answer or... Well, I don't want to be negative because none of us know what we're doing. Let's just call it what it is. That's true. But but in looking at it, when making decisions, it's always best to let's list all the pros. Let's list all of the cons. Let's run scenarios to see how this could possibly turn out. And one of the first scenarios that comes across my mind is in the month of May, Johnny's mom decided she wanted him to learn virtually only. And then here we are with Uh, let's say five teachers in our building that's providing face-to-face all the others are doing virtual and then we have a a number of students just show up on campus that alters our numbers that does Mm -hmm. not follow cdc guidelines just you know makes me wonder where the other pieces to that model are we going to put contracts on parents so that they sign saying their child is learning virtually if they decide they want to switch to learning face-to-face what's the wait time to ensure that we're not going over the maximum number of students and and classes all of those things need to be taken into consideration well and that's a really good point because as a parent i would think just like one of those parents that you're referring to where i would say Mm -hmm. you know what let me see how things go for the first few months and if things are going good then i want to get her into school after a week you know right (laughs) there are going to be some parents that say you're going to school (laughs) well it's not just that from uh you know where you need to send your kid because they're driving you nuts at home but also i mean from the sense of I just want to see if it's safe like we really don't know right like we have not we have not put our society through this test yet of everyone heading back to school and we really don't know the effects of that and we won't know the effects of that until probably late September. We don't know the effects, but we've seen some images that I think kind of tug on the heartstrings. Um, I saw a classroom, a picture of a classroom in China, um, a kindergarten classroom that had clear dividers Mm -hmm. up and the children were eating their lunches. And it looked so sad. I didn't really see any smiles. Now, of course, you can't read into a quick snapshot, but it just does not look the same as what I'm used to seeing um, kindergartners at the table just smiling and as happy as they can be struggling to open their milk and their ketchup and learning the, you know, 
just the process of, of dining in the cafeteria. And it's so cool when you see the older children come in, even if they're only in second grade, that's like huge oh, yeah. for them. Right. And, and now the only students you ever see are the 10 to 12 students in your classroom. So how do they dream? How do they look forward to being on the next hallway? If, 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 you know, all the interactions are cut out. I just, I think about our childhood and think about just the many things that they could miss out on. Now, listen, let me just go and throw this plug out there. Whoever is working on a vaccine, a cure, oh, so many prayers going up for them so that they can expedite this and, and help us move forward. Uh, I mean, in your vision of uh, what life is going to be like for a kindergartner, possibly in the fall of 2020, I mean, it almost brings a tear to my eye. It's like thinking it of, does. you know, that to uh, think kids are going to have to live like this. And I'm already dealing. And I your have, precious baby is going right, to right, kinder. Yeah, she's on her way. And, and you know, we are those parents that are, we're on the strict and cautious side. Um, yes. We have a, a child who is her age next door to us. And after about a week into this back in March, they, we have not let them play together. And, and that's so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's and just she's so outgoing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I can just, you know, imagine her running home on the first day running in the house, just with so many wonderful stories to tell you about her first day in school. And, and it's going to be so different than what we would have expected, you know, and, and we were traveling recently and her awareness is shocking. Cause, um, you know, we we were in Texas. We were passing through Texas, um, and we needed to run into a store real quick. And um, we have masks, and she's worn a mask into a store. And she's like, she said, like, I, I want to wear a mask because no one else in this area that we're in was wearing masks. It was just this part of the country where they uh-huh. it wasn't required, and people weren't wearing them. And she's, well, I don't want to get sick. And and like, That's gosh, so yeah. I mean, it's good, but also like the fact that a five year old is thinking about that also breaks my heart a little bit you know it's like there's, these, heart, these are adult you know problems what? you know she, she's not only aware she's a smart girl because it's very disheartening to see the number of people not wearing a mask i ventured out to curbside pickup today and i hadn't done that um and i, I stopped by a restaurant curbside pickup peeked inside the restaurant and it was a ton of people in there and none of them were wearing masks and they weren't six feet apart. The tables were not um, altered in, in any way. Mm-hmm. And I just, I looked in there and I saw a few people that I knew and I just thought to myself, they're putting their children at risk and they're all at risk. That's a whole nother show, but it's it's just so scary. But I'm so proud of her for still wanting to, to wear a mask and knowing that this is going to help me. But it the big thing that we need everybody to recognize is when I wear a mask, Nick, I'm protecting you. Right. It's it's not it's not I'm protecting myself. It's you're protecting the people around you. You're you're one hundred percent right. And it's a it's a respect thing, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's I'm not wearing one because I'm afraid of you. I'm wearing it because I don't want to get you sick because I could it's a be different sick. than not blowing um smoke in your face if I smoke a cigarette. Right. I'm gonna you know, I'm going the other direction. I'm walking to the special place at the building and I don't smoke by the way, but you think about in you know, in public places they have a special location for people that want to smoke because it is out of respect for the rest of us that do not. In the city that we live in, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, we've had an aggressive uh, a mayor, uh, Mayor Toby Barker. Oh, he's doing and, a wonderful job. And and the fact that he has 
forced businesses to uh, if to you want to require yes yeah and it's not just it's not just the people who are coming first it was the employees had to wear the mask so then that kind of removed the stigma for the patrons if they chose mm-hmm. to wear a mask and then he was like well if you even want to shop in a store now you have to wear a mask and, and he's and received a lot of criticism for people it. inside um i went to pick up I had to have my glasses redone last week. And when I went to pick up my glasses, I said I had to sit in my car until they called me to tell me it was okay to come in because they were only allowing three patrons in at a time. Mm-hmm. And and so I think I appreciated that. I, I like being forced to do it. And I know that sounds funny. It's free country. You should be able to do what you want. No, I like it because it, it removes the stigma. It, it removes any mm-hmm. question. It's just like we're all on the same page. Well, it reduces anxiety. You're standing exactly. there wondering the person that's standing over there waiting on their glasses as well. And they're breathing. And you're like, oh, Laura, they breathing. What are they breathing? You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm in my car. I go right in. Glasses were ready. Pick them up. I'm able to walk right out. And so it's changed um the process for shopping and things of that nature but it's it's for your safety and so i will say that the restaurant i popped in today for curbside all of the employees were wearing masks one more thing before we go what do you know about mississippi do you have some heads up on well we're we're monitoring three options um that school districts are looking at for opening of schools for fall first option obviously is do you want to open up like normal on the first day of school that's already scheduled and approved on your district map uh calendar uh two just go ahead and start the school year off with virtual learning, understanding that if you start off with a normal opening, you're probably going to be shut down in September. That's just reality. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that second option with just starting off with virtual learning. But if you start off with virtual, there hasn't really been um, discussion about, well, will it change after a period of time? And then that last option, which I think is gaining traction, is the hybrid model where um, 50% of your students attend two days a week, the other 50%, the other two days. And then that fifth day, we've talked about teacher planning, staff development or whatnot. But I guess that could coincide with the sanitizing of the building. And I'm a, I'm a supporter of option three. Now, I like that too, because it sets a routine for both worlds. You know what I mean? So it's like if we have to pull back on the in-person meeting, we're already kind of in somewhat of a rhythm of this virtual learning. But at the same time, we're trying to do this in person. Um, I'd like to also point out, though, while I may be on the first 50 percent and say I'm going to school either Monday, Tuesday or Monday, Wednesday, I do want to point out that Tuesday, Thursday and Friday are still instructional days and they're online. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about what that will look like, whether it's online assignments that have been provided with pre-recorded videos since the teachers will be um, face to face with the other half of the students. But students are not going to reduce the number of days that they're involved in instruction. We will have five days. Yeah, I could see that being a little challenging if a teacher is now teaching like in two different forms, you know, I could see that being a challenge. But if it's just mainly like assignment and follow up, I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's well, it also depends on what you, you know, identify as a core resource for your distance learning. And I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a lot of schools um, in the South that are utilizing a product sold by curriculum associates because we do not, you know, um, (laughs) support individual um, 
products. I will just say the company name, which is Curriculum Associates. And it is a product that has a diagnostic assessment at the beginning of the year when the student takes the test and they are able to have an individual learning path developed for them within the program. And each student works at their own progress and pace based on their learning ability. And then, of course, they're assessed again in the middle of the year and the path is altered. There are a number of different programs out there like that where teachers can control um, what a student accesses aside from individual learning paths already being created. And that is supplemental to the core instruction provided by the teachers. So there's a ton of resources that are already there and in a lot of instances have been used, but not for distance learning. And so we were able to put those products uh, in key play this spring to see what that looked like. And it was pretty successful. Again, Christina, I appreciate so much for your time for helping us navigate this complex and uh, fast evolving situation that we're dealing with. My pleasure. Thank you for talking with me. Are you ready for the right idea? Always, always bring it on. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us the lowdown on inquiry-based learning. Trevor McKenzie is the author of Dive Into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset. Trevor, welcome to Class Dismissed. Nick, thanks so much. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Great to connect and uh, looking forward to this. We're excited to connect too. But first, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to do something that may or may not be hard. I guess it depends on how much you, you're prepared on this stuff. But imagine you and I are on an elevator together and we're getting off at different floors. And I say, Trevor, what's inquiry-based learning? How do you quickly get that point across? Yeah, I love it. Uh, well, that's a challenge because, you know, I spent days, sometimes weeks work with teachers around the world and deepening understanding of inquiry. But uh, in a nutshell, I would say getting our students to have more of an active role in the classroom, uh, exploring their questions and their curiosities as entry points into our curriculum, and definitely playing with the role of the teacher in the classroom. And sometimes that teacher is at the front of the room and uh, leading the way, so to speak. And sometimes the teacher is that guide on the ride, you know, someone who's facilitating and supporting learners. And, uh, you know, the role of questions, I think, is pivotal in the inquiry classroom. And then I have to stop because I've exited the elevator and you're moving up and I'm gone. So, uh, but again, you know, Nick, it's something that's an ongoing piece of my work is helping teachers around the world uh, with implementation of inquiry, if you will. Well, and now, and now we can actually dive into it. And I'm just going to refer to it as IBL probably for the rest of the uh, the, the show. But how how is this different from, say, personalized learning? We've done episodes on that. They sound kind of similar, but not the same, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think inquiry as an umbrella, you know, there are many frameworks and protocols and, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to say catchphrases, but there's a lot of trendy jargon happening around, you know, the global educational discourse right now, Proje- project-based learning, problem-based learning, personalized learning. I think inquiry is the overarching umbrella. And Underneath that umbrella, what we're trying to do is really give our experience in our classrooms over to the students so they can take ownership over different components of their learning. So whether it's, you know, designing a genuine, authentic task to exploring a curiosity or a question that's theirs, uh, you know, I think all those frameworks underneath the umbrella of inquiry really shift the ownership over to the students and that gradual relief uh, release of responsibility from the teacher to the student, I think is a really key aspect that inquiry uh, uh, pushes forward. Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, you you want to give ownership to the students. I mean, does that mean you're you're asking them? All right, well, what do we learn about today? Like, how does that look? Yeah, it looks like different things uh, throughout the year. You know, I, I find time and time again, students at the beginning of the year, they, they, they tend to be more cautious and more anxious around taking ownership over the over their learning. And, you know, we, we can't fault them for that. I think our educational systems have been really, 
you know, pushing a, a complacent model for years and years and years. And then they walk into an inquiry space and they're asked to, hey, well, what are you passionate about or what are you curious about? So earlier on in the year, it really is modeling what inquiry can look like through a teacher directed inquiry. You know, I always start my unit design with a big overarching ungoogleable question, if you will. And I make that Google or ungoogleable question front and center in my classroom, right? So we can all see it. And I try to have it be really enticing. You know, I want to pull my my students into our curriculum through that overarching question. And then I'm really big on provocations, Nick. Provocations are those really exciting entry points into our curriculum. I show a lot of video that is tied to our curriculum, uh, but really trying to spark interest and curiosity within my students and then kind of figure out what questions they have around the concepts of which we're going to study. So really being a responsive educator in terms of my unit planning, rather than planning out unit after unit after unit before I get to know my students and the questions they have about our curriculum. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and so I know you like to to break it down to almost like four categories when you're when you're teaching other teachers how to pull this off in their class. And and I guess you decided to start doing this because you would probably give speeches and and everyone would want to just like jump into the deep end of the pool to, to use your scenario. And you're, you're kind of like, no, we need to do this more gradually. We need to do this as if we are a swim coach, right? Yeah. You know, a, a key piece of my work is, is a framework that students and teachers can experience inquiry through. And really, if you can imagine that swimming pool, you know, there's a shallower end where the teacher is definitely taking on more of a role in terms of planning an inquiry unit. You know, the questions that we ask, the provocations that are brought in, the resources that students are going to grapple with and unpack, that's all decided uh, through the lens of the teacher. And that's my role is really modeling what a strong inquiry can look like. And then four units of studies, so that's what we call a structured inquiry. You know, another unit of study would be a controlled inquiry. Then we transition into guided inquiry and finally free inquiry. And free inquiry is that deep end of the inquiry pool where students are choosing the topic. They're crafting their own question that they're going to explore and try to answer. You know, I'm helping them find resources that they're going to use to answer that big question that they've asked. And then they have agency over how they want to demonstrate their learning. You know, what's the best vehicle to share and communicate everything that they've learned through the process of that free inquiry. So, you know, those two different types of inquiry from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool. If listeners can imagine this gradual shift in responsibility over learning from the teacher to the student. So our students are less anxious and then they're gaining the skills and understandings required to be successful in taking on more agency over learning. Those four types of inquiry are four units of study in my classroom across the whole year from September until June. Uh, and, you know, at times I, I settle into a certain type longer because my students require more time, not just to explore a question, but more specifically to really gain and sharpen those tools and those skills that inquirers need. Uh, and then, you know, of course, we, we culminate our year in that free inquiry, the deep end of the pool. In my classroom, that tends to look like a gala or some kind of a public display of understanding, if you will, where we try to take our learning beyond the four walls of our classroom and invite people from the community in or people from other classrooms in. Because inevitably, the questions and the topics these students are exploring in free inquiry they're super interesting, right? And we want to share that learning because learning shouldn't be confined just to a single course or, you know, something that can be dumped into a recycling bin at the end of the year. It should be meaningful for all those involved. So really trying to take it to, you know, towards the end of the year to a gala space. I think students really enjoy sharing their free inquiry project to a public audience. Yeah, You offer up this really cool graphic that 
basically draws out what you were were just saying, and and I'll either link to it or if you'll let me share it um, when we post this podcast in the notes. But you you have like the structured um, inquiry area, and it's it's kids in a pool with a coach, and they're like on the wall, and and they're they're just getting started, they're just getting used to the pool. And as you work along, next you hand them the the little paddle boards that they may swim with, or the little wakeboards, and then they're starting to do freestyle on their own. And then it's just kind of like they're in the deep end, and they're some are jumping off the diving board and so forth. So I don't know if that it's, it's difficult sometimes to draw a picture in in a podcast, but hopefully that kind of helps our listeners a little bit. Um, you did a great job there, Nick. Well done. And I, and I strongly recommend people, you know, download and print off the graphic. You know, it's something I, le- I use in my classroom all the time. Uh, it's a teaching resource essentially for my students so they can understand where their role is going to shift throughout the year uh, and how my role is also going to shift to better support them taking ownership over their learning. So yeah, by all means, Nick, please link it to the podcast and, and listeners, please print it off and use it with your students. And, and so that's good to know that you actually share it with the students. So if somebody's still not keeping up with us, like, can you give me a real life example of like the first step, structured inquiry and your, you, what are you doing like in terms of, um, I guess you're an English teacher at, at heart, right? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a trained English teacher, but you know, my work really transcends uh, a specific subject area. You know, I think teachers from kindergarten all the way up to higher ed can adopt inquiry as their own. You know, on day one, uh, you know, it's all about relationships, Nick. As we know in education, we have to build strong relationships with our students. And that's just also true in an inquiry classroom. You know, getting to know our students both in terms of their strengths and their challenges, but also their interests and their curiosities, so I could leverage those. It, towards the deeper end of the pool. You know, I, I don't do a single assignment for the first couple of weeks. Uh, my students are writing and they're talking, but nothing is taken in for marks because I really want to create a strong relationship with all my kids. So, you know, on day one, I'm doing all those goofy name games. I'm meeting my kids at the front door and we're doing kind of little checks and little conversations so I can get to know them better. Uh, and as soon as I feel like that relationship is strong and I've gotten to know my students pretty darn well, uh, I roll out that structured inquiry and that is, you know, I begin with that overarching, ungoogleable question. You know, one that we're chewing on right away this year will be, who are you and what shapes your identity? Uh, and that's a big question for any young person to explore. Uh, beautiful question in the English classroom, because as we read different pieces, whether it's stories or poems or watch documentaries or read novels, you know, identity is a key characteristic across literature. And having my students not just understand identity through literature, but create a deeper understanding of themselves and what their values and their beliefs are and their goals. That's kind of the, the balance I'm, I'm trying to achieve in this structured inquiry. Uh, you know, both give them an active role in exploring themselves through the lens of the literature that we're reading. Uh, I'll roll out a really awesome provocation that I've designed that looks at identity across different scopes in society. You know, we'll look at branding and pop culture and media and its impact on identity We'll look at gender and identity, which is really, really an important topic for young students to grapple with and kind of sharpen a conversation around. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll look at politics, politics and identity and the shape of values that are in our political realm. And it all comes back to uh, eventually 
them understanding themselves better as students and as learners and as citizens in our world, right? So uh, starting learning with a question, I think is the greatest shift teachers and listeners can make in, in, in with regards to unit design. You know, what is that overarching question that is tied to a concept that's in our curriculum or a topic in our curriculum and drafting that overarching question and making it really visible in your classroom. So everything you're doing and talking about and reading is tied to that overarching question. And essentially, that's our goal is to answer that question, isn't it? By the end of our unit, students should be able to talk to and write to uh, the answer to that question, if you will, Nick. And do you think the students are keeping up um, as you go along? Like, do they do they see this almost as a teacher would see this? A, a key hallmark of an inquiry classroom is just being really transparent and intentional with all aspects of learning in the classroom. There's no, you know, hidden agenda here. There's no you know, the students don't know where we're going, the frameworks and the structures that we we adopt in an inquiry classroom, not just allow students to have a clear understanding of where we're going and that active role that we're seeking out. But I mean, we're constantly talking, right? The inquiry classroom, I, I think is pretty lively, pretty boisterous. And we're always talking. And in that talking, I'm getting a really clear understanding of both where my students are currently and then where we need to go next. Where do I need to take the next in terms of my direct instruction and any resources that I could bring in to deepen their understanding of that question? So I would say students have a really clear understanding of where we're headed. And I think they feel really confident in the sense that they see that swimming pool graphic and they know that we're starting in the shallow end and they know that slowly throughout the year, they're going to take on more agency and more of an active role and that we won't go further in that swimming pool until they're ready. And that gives them a lot of confidence, that trust and that faith that they have seeing that swimming pool graphic. As you travel, do you find that teachers are aware and already practicing IBL or is this something that you're like walking in and blowing their mind and, and then they're attacking it? Well, I see both, Nick. Uh, but to be honest, I'm typically invited into spaces to support teachers and they've already committed themselves to this journey. And, and what they need help with isn't, you know, understanding why they want to do IBL, but it's the how, it's the implementation piece. And so very rarely do I walk into a space where I feel like I have to do any convincing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Typically, it's, it's in a space where teachers have committed themselves and it's getting down into the nitty gritty of how to roll out an inquiry unit. It's kind of what we're talking about here, Nick, and what those steps look like. And what does a year look like in inquiry and what challenges or barriers to inquire have I witnessed in my own classroom and in my own visits to schools so I could try my best to support those teachers who I'm supporting uh, at the schools that I visit. So, you know, inquiry, I think, is uh, it's, it's on the tip of the global conversation right now uh, in education. And I think it's because schools and organizations are looking to move away from an over-standardized curriculum and assessment model and to that personalized model that you referred to at the outset of our podcast here. And what does that more personalized space look like? Uh, and what are the frameworks where we can adopt more agency for our students in the classroom? So I don't want to say it's trendy. You know, inquiry has been around for a very long time. It's nothing new. But I think it's really relevant right now because of that, that shift in education that we're seeing around the world. Uh, so talking about IBL and personalized learning in general, to a person who's very structured and organized, it can probably be really intimidating. Like, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have this student doing this and this student doing that. Like, how do you convince the, the structured and organized person that this might be a good way to go? 
Yeah, you know, I try to break down some inquiry myths, if you will, Nick. You know, I think one inquiry myth is that explicit instruction is bad and that, you know, the teacher at the front of the room standing at a lecture stand, that doesn't happen in an inquiry space. And that's just not the case. We've seen the research tell us that when a teacher does some explicit instruction, especially in a response to a student's curiosity or to an interest or to a need that the students have, inquiry is much more successful. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think some teachers have a tough time letting go of that, that sense of control in an inquiry classroom. But teachers need to understand that inquiry does have explicit instruction. And uh, it does have many of the components that we've always done in a traditional setting they transfer over to an inquiry classroom. And I think breaking down some of those myths and really deepening an understanding of what inquiry is, how it feels, uh, how you plan an inquiry allows you know a teacher who likes control to see themselves in inquiry because an inquiry isn't a loss of control. It isn't you know messy and uncertain. A teacher just shifts their role from, again, that teacher directed always at the focal point of the classroom to slowly removing some of those restraints over learning to empower our students once they have the skills and understandings necessary to take on more agency over their learning. Does that make sense to you, Nick? Yes, absolutely. And and you have two books, Dive Into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset. You know, how do you recommend people dive in with your book? Should they start with the first one and then move on to the second? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first one I wrote uh, with all educators in mind, and then in my work visiting schools around the world, I was getting these really specific questions from primary teachers, you know, that K to five lens. And so inquiry mindset really has been written for uh, early years educators from K to grade five, uh, whereas dive into inquiry, it transcends kind of K to higher ed. But what I've begun to notice is it's more widely well-received middle school, high school. So we kind of have two books depending on your grade level. If you teach middle school, high school, I would say dive into inquiries for you. And if you teach the younger years, inquiry mindsets for you. And what we're doing there is the frameworks and the structures and the process, it's the same in either book, but the examples that we give and how we roll this out with the younger years as compared to our older students, that's more specific in terms of the resource that we've created for you. All right, Trevor McKenzie, if someone wants to keep up with you, do you like to interact? Are you on like social media? Do you like Twitter? Do you have a place you like to hang out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, find me, uh, my online space is trevormckenzie.com. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned that because there are a bunch of free resources, whether it's webinars or, you know, those tangible resources that you can bring in your classroom to support inquiry. Uh, I'm really active on, on Twitter. It's at Trev underscore McKenzie. And then I'm on Instagram at TNT McKenzie. So those are kind of my three spaces where I love to interact with teachers. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to enlighten myself and our listeners about IBL. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I suppose I am. Let's do this. (laughs) All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, my goodness. It's got to be art. I think all students need to be creative. And uh, yeah, art teachers are just amazing. So I'd say uh, an art class would be the one class I'd want all students to participate in. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Empathy. Absolutely. Empathy needs to be a learning objective. And uh, that needs to be front and center in some of our unit design. Empathy is it. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to be seen. I think teachers, uh, you know, I beg you to see your students, know their names and uh, build that relationship. And from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave our days with us, they need to be seen. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? 
Oh, I think it's to let go of the things that we've done in the past to adopt the things that are new or uncertain for us and to be comfortable in that mess of uncertainty and uh, recognize that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but that we need to uh, make that shift and, and be comfortable in that uncertainty. What's the best gift to give an educator? Ooh, that's a tough one. Ooh, I'd like to say a bottle of wine, but I guess I should go with a book since I am an author. I think, uh, you know, those tangible books that allow us to implement a big idea, but in a really uh, actionable way, I think, uh, you know, a resource is, is really critical and important. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, my goodness. My high school basketball coach, Mickey Welder. Uh, from long rides at the front of the bus talking about life to uh, just teaching me strong work ethic, you know, what good communication and collaboration and team skills looks like. I think my time as a basketball coach under Mickey Welder taught me a lot about the teacher I want to be and, and the father I am. Well, and that's interesting. You, it had nothing to do with curriculum. It was like you said, he got to know you, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, you know, all teachers should coach at some point in their careers because I think it really, again, it opens up our eyes to students in a different light. But uh, it, it allows us to take on mentorship, mentorship, if you will, in, in a different way as well. So very thankful for those teachers who give of themselves outside of the classroom as well as inside of the classroom, Nick. And last question. It's an easy one. Pen or pencil? Oh, pencil. All right. Trevor McKenzie again. <laughs> we appreciate you taking the time to to bring us up to speed on IBL and uh, best of luck to you with uh, all your books and all your work. Nick, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>